welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. I'm here today with Michael Horn. Michael speaks and writes about the future of education and works with a portfolio of education organizations to improve the life of each and every student. He's a senior strategist with Guild Education, which partners with leading employers and organizations to help offer education and upskilling opportunities for America's workforce. He's also co-founder of and distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, a nonprofit think tank. Michael's the author and co-author of multiple books, white papers, and articles on education, including the award-winning book, Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, Amazon bestseller, Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools, which has been some of my light reading over the break, and also his latest book, Choosing College. An expert on disruptive innovation, online learning, blended learning, competency-based learning, and how to transform our education system into a student-centered one. He serves on the board and advisory boards of a range of education organizations, including the Clayton Christensen Institute, the Robin Hood Learning and Tech Fund, the Learn Launch Institute, and he also serves as executive director of Education Next and venture partner at NextGen Venture Partners. Thank you for your time today, Michael. I'm so excited that you're here and we get to have a conversation. Yeah, I'm super excited. Thanks for having me. You've recently begun a new role with Guild Education. Can you tell us about the organization and about the work that you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Guild, as you said in the intro, uh, basically had this notion uh, that employers have a lot of education benefits that they have open uh, to employees across the country and that so many employees don't take advantage of these benefits and employers aren't really helping them take advantage. And yet we know that we need a lot of folks to upskill into real middle skills uh, jobs, if you will, uh, that can make good wages that continue to grow, that promote economic mobility for themselves and their families. And that uh, if we can be more intentional around the set of educational options and the coaching and mentorship that we provide uh, these employees, that they'll take advantage of those benefits, persist, succeed, and then continue to grow. And the employers that we work with, Fortune 1000 companies, Uh, they've really seen the benefit of this in terms of actually that it's a strategic investment, that it actually helps them uh, if they invest in their human capital through education. And so uh, it's it's an exciting new role uh, that that I've stepped into, but it's it's really neat being able to work with a really innovative set of educational organizations on the one hand, and then farsighted employers on the other that are really interested in helping uh, often frontline workers, you know, places like Chipotle, Five Guys and the like, advance in their careers and do better. And it's, it's been exciting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I recently had a conversation. A girlfriend of mine is in the human resources department at Phil's Coffee, which is a local sure. coffee chain here in the Bay Area. Yeah, um, great coffee chain. As, <laughs> yeah, they make great coffee. Um, and through the pandemic, they, uh, you know, like many other people, had to lay off a lot of their workforce. Many of their stores were closed. But one of the things they did was offer education for a lot of their employees. They made LinkedIn Learning free for all of their employees and offered, you know, several other ways for employees to stay engaged and to do some self-improvement and educational work. And it was really interesting. She saw, I want to say she said maybe only 20% of employees actually took them up on those offers. 
so I'm curious, kind of, are you working with companies to provide incentives for employees to do this or are you, how are you working with them? Yeah. So it's, it's a couple things because you're right. A lot of times the uptake of this is not that high. Although actually, interestingly enough, 20% is not a bad number relative to what, where a lot of other folks are. But what we've noticed is that a couple of things are true. And uh, one is if employees have choice in providers so that they can match something to their actual interest and that they can choose between different options and figure out what's the right fit for me, they're more likely to um, uh, have an uptake on those benefits. So we offer several different programs um, from many different providers uh, on the platform. And and that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, we do a lot of coaching with uh, folks, making it known, hey, this is an option. What are your interests? What are your passions? Let's think about your strengths and really start to understand that. And what are the different pathways that you could pursue and how is education a critical part of that? So there's a lot of coaching and education on the front end. And then really, we mentor them into the right fit. We stay with them and do a lot of life coaching and mentorship during the program itself so that they uptake and not just uptake because a lot of people can just jump into an educational program, but actually so that they'll persist and complete and have the benefit that comes from that. And so uh, honestly, I don't know if it's secret sauce as much as just really making sure we're listening uh, to the frontline workers and understanding what do they really want to go and get done in their lives? What's the progress they're Mm -hmm. trying to make? and then help them find the right set of programs. And and people don't like a lot of choice because it's overwhelming, but they like a little choice because they want to have some ownership in the decision. So it's interesting because you're talking about working with companies and working with adults and how we we engage them in their own learning and give them choices to learn, which in some ways seems very different from the educational system, but also is very similar to how we promote student agency from a young age. And there's a lot of talk about student-centered learning and letting students guide what they are learning. Can you help us understand, you know, in your work with K-12 and in your work in college and, and now in the workforce, how can we move from a system that is very passive, where people are just taking in information and expected to kind of regurgitate it, to more of a system where teachers are becoming like what you're doing now, where we're coaching, we're helping kids to see, you know, what is the problem that you need to solve and what do we need to get there? How do we How do we really become facilitators of that learning and support students to become not just good students who are going to sit, listen, and and do well on a test, but really good learners where they want to participate in what they're doing? Yeah, the the question is such a good one. And and for those listening who don't know, like my background is more K-12 education, right? Like I've I've moved up, if you will, through the uh, age spectrum over time of education and really work across it now. But what's so clear in the research is that active learning is demonstrably, demonstrably, demonstrably better than passive learning experiences. And yet so much of our education uh, programs have been designed around these passive experiences. And a large part of that is because the origins of education were in the fact in the industrial revolution. They were in this factory model notion. And prior to that, schools were the one one room schoolhouse right you had many students all different ages all different needs and so forth and a teacher going around to each of them and helping and coaching and tutoring and so forth and then uh, when the industrial revolution hit in america we all of a sudden said oh my goodness we've got to educate massive numbers of individuals we've got to create universal schooling and we were the first universal schooling you know country uh, in in the world but our answer to that at the time was okay, we're going to batch kids up by age, we're going to stick them in a classroom, and the teacher will deliver learning to them. 
the exact same way, the exact same time, et cetera. And we'll just keep moving students on regardless of how they do. And that resulted in this incredibly passive experience because it's economically speaking, very efficient, right? Just to convey information and talk at someone. It just turns out that that's not at all how we learn. You learn by being an active participant, engaged in your learning, uh, actually, you know, acting on it, right? Constantly trying things, working thing, problems through, as you said. Engagement matters an extraordinary amount in that equation. Mm-hmm. And when we create the, and cultivate these experiences, you see significant gains from learners, even on the traditional measures of tests and the like. Like, I, I actually think one of the ironies of the last, I don't know, 30 years of school reform has been that it's sort of like um, in the 1800s in medicine, we started to realize that blood pressure was an important indicator of health. And doctors said, well, I'll just leech the patient because if I drain the blood, the pressure goes down, right? And uh, I kind of think we've, as an industry, have reacted similarly with test scores, which is, it's just an indicator, right? And it turns out that the best way to boost test scores is not, in fact, to just drill and kill people and make them sit through more passive experiences. It's to fundamentally flip our notion and create these active learning experiences with problems and projects uh, that engage learners deeply and, and, and create choice and help them learn how to navigate choice, frankly. So I, I don't know if I'm answering your question fully, except to say, like, you're right, the research couldn't be more clear, one. Two, I think a reason that we don't have a lot of choice in our system or a lot of these opportunities for active learning is the, or, the historical origins uh, of, of the system that we've inherited. And then three, I think, in sort of our desperation to meet, you know, and show that students are in fact learning, we've reduced learning in some ways to, to a focus on just how do we convey the information and not step back and been much more thoughtful about how do we actually engage learners. So not just so that they pass a test, to your point, but so that they become lifelong learners. And this is the last point, which is, it is so clear right now that you cannot think of education as a 12 years or 16 years experience, and then you're done. Given automation, given the rapid nature of changing work, given globalization, on and on and on, people have to be lifelong learners. They have to be constantly curious and reskilling in their lives, which means that a fundamental skill we need to teach people is actually how to direct your own learning to seek out the avenues to continue to upskill. And that's actually a critical competency in this era. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I think the other piece of that is the way that we've, number one, set up our educational systems around this industrial era. And, you know, that's one way we could take this next part of the conversation is looking at, (laughs) um, you know, you've worked with educational organizations all over the world. And the more conversations I have with thought leaders like you, and the more we look at the research and what we know about education, we know that we need to be involved in our education. We know that it needs to be personally driven. We know that we need to be invested and it needs to be relevant. And we need to have hands-on experience that are cross-curricular cutting that makes sense. Yet our schools and our systems are so resistant to that change. What do you think that resistance is rooted in? And during this time right now, we've essentially given up standardized tests the state of California has thrown out the ACT and the SAT this year for college yep, admissions. Yeah. We've given up on seat time as we're looking at more blended learning and partially from home and partially from school or half days. You know, so many of these things have been stripped away. 
do you think there's still going to be that same amount of resistance or is there more behind that? What are you seeing? What's the reluctance to move to another system? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the reasons is I, I don't think it's the, the fault of people inside the system. I think it's the system itself, right? So, um, and what we've seen from our research on innovation over and over again is organizations, they're basically made up of sort of the value proposition and then resources, processes, and priorities. And the processes become incredibly sticky um, about how you get things done to solve specific problems. And then the moment you have a new problem arise, that same process that was so good is not good at solving that new problem, but it's incredibly sticky and it's, and it's incredibly rooted. And so any new process that comes in that doesn't fit the organizational needs, one of two things happens. Either the organization rejects it and just says like, yeah, that might be interesting, but it's not for us. Uh, or it twists and turns and morphs it to fit the needs of the organization rather than like the need, you know, the problem it's actually designed to solve. And so these rigid structures, you know, subject area, class, seat time, um, all the curricular standards, you know, hundreds and thousands of them throughout schooling, you know, a kid's schooling experience, they all add up to a system that is extremely rigid, but is designed to produce the exact outcomes that it produces, nothing more and nothing less, if that makes sense, right? So it does what it was designed to do and is incredibly successful as such, but it does not, by definition, not designed <laughs> for all these other things that we're talking about in an era of a knowledge economy and, and, and the like. And so I think that's a major part of it. The interesting question then you then posed, of course, is like, so we're throwing out a lot of that right now. <laughs> What, what might happen. Um, and I think it's tough to predict because I think the longer this stretches on, the more likely it becomes that some of the changes we're, we're having to make right now and the new processes we're having to adopt, the more likely it becomes that those become sticky, if you will. But if it's short of duration, I think right now people are just going to run back into the comfort of the structures because it's like, you know, this is chaotic right now, right? Like there's no... Um, there's a lot of pain and, and challenge in, in shifting. And I think people will just fall back in. And part of that is also, and, and this is the other part of the equation, the priorities, right? Like how do we fund schools? How do we measure success and so forth? They have to change as well um, for these to be more durable and sticky. And so, you know, we are waiving seat time requirements sort of, but we're also not fully, right? Like we're still coming up with proxies for average daily attendance as opposed to the individual progress that each learner might be making, which I would argue would be a way better way to think about not all of schooling, but parts of schooling. So I, I think that's part of it. I, the, the last piece I think is also a translation piece, which is to say, I do think that society is meaningfully correct, that there are certain knowledge and skills that learners uh, ought to learn, right? Regardless of sort of are they interested in it tomorrow or not? But I think what people wed to that conversation have missed is that following so, uh, a learner's interests is really a gateway into building that, not those knowledge and skills underlying an interesting or paradoxical problem to a learner. And that learner's interests are far more widespread than we give them credit for often, right? So it's not the case that someone's only going to be interested in video games and, and whatever. 
if teachers intentionally put different ideas or paradoxical problems and challenges to learners, they'll pick up on it and run with it if there's a thoughtful arc and knowledge underlying it to really chase down, if you will. And I think we can, as a result, like knowledge is very critical. Content is very critical, but it's way more uh, helpful if it's in an engaging problem where I actually see a need to suck it into my life now. And then the other thing is that those people who are very, and, and I put myself in this camp in some ways, like sort of, you know, content and knowledge matter. The research is clear that it doesn't matter in a vacuum, like just sort of shooting little bits of trivia at someone. What's really magical is the coherence, right? Across subjects of knowledge um, in the context of something larger. And Unfortunately, our subject matter discipline way of looking at the world, you know, you have social studies and then you go to science and they probably never talk to each other. That really works against the sort of interdisciplinary stuff that you're talking about uh, that, that would make this sort of a change more durable. And I, I do unfortunately think that's going to be a real challenge to sort of push back against that. Yeah, it's one of the things we talk a lot about, both with our educators and with our students, is how do we how do we do an inquiry learning setup where we're drawing in students' interests, but then our educators, and I had a chat with Freedom Chicheni the other day, and he called them learning engineers as yes, instead of it. educators. And how do you bring in a student interest and then bring in, like you were saying, all those other things that really coalesce around that interest, yeah. um, but our other branches and things of knowledge that maybe it's really important for us to have, because if we don't have knowledge of humanities, if we don't have knowledge of history, if we don't have knowledge of science, yes, all those things are available by asking Siri. But when we have them in, in our own conscious, we can use them much more easily and relate the world to things around them and, you know, and, and how we move forward. And so it's really how do we give educators more agency to be able to do that? So they're not in silos and it's not social studies and then science and then math, but it's a full identity project around the science of who I am and my genome and the math of my family tree and the social studies of where I came from and my heritage and the countries of my forefathers and their histories. You know, how do we how do we give educators that agency to design relevant learning for their yeah, students? I love that so much, the way you just framed that. And I think part of this is if we can pull the notion that like certain standards have to be met or covered in certain years because of your date of birth, that would also really help lift some of this because I would know that there's sets of competencies that I ought to explore, right? I ought to understand the founding of the country and what that affords me as a citizen and some of the challenges and controversies and so forth, right? Like that, that's something, I don't need the exact dates, but I need to understand the context of that. That's something that can be woven through in different projects that occur in different times. We don't necessarily, to your point, you're all in fourth grade, you're all going to have this right now. I, I think it's probably California history where you are in fourth grade is I think what it is. Um, And we can take a more expansive view of that and also understand each learner is going to access that differently based on their background knowledge and what they get in the home environment, right? So uh, what might be review for me and actually disengage me and cause me to become more passive and less excited about education, for someone else, it's going to be new information and super fascinating. And the flip side is also going to be true, right? Like I'm not going to get exposure to certain parts of the world based on my ancestry and my family's story 
And so therefore, I'm going to have to come up with different ways to pull that in for me and make it highly accessible. Someone else, that might be old hat to them, and they can demonstrate that through uh, some artifact of work. And you can say, yep, you've mastered that, and therefore, we allow you to move. And I think if we can pull the standards up a level almost and take the time element out from them and say, like, look, at the end of schooling experience, this is the core stuff you'll be able to know and do. That's great. And then we don't root it as much into each subject matter and so forth to give license to the social studies, science, math, uh, English language arts teachers Mm -hmm. to really come together as a group and say, what's the right way to create interesting projects and problems that will cover those things. And incidentally, I mean, we have reading tests in this country. It turns out that once you get above the third grade, largely, and, and you know how to read, Reading is not a skill. It's based on your knowledge and so forth. And so it therefore stands to reason that you become a better reader by your exposure to history and science, et cetera, right? And so, um, and yet we've somehow created reading tests in English language arts as a subject, and we think just drilling main idea over and over again will somehow improve someone's reading scores, which I I would argue flies in the face of the learning science and the evidence on, on what actually boosts learning. Yeah, interesting. It leads really well into a question of what what we really want out of our schooling experience, which mm-hmm. was a question that recently came up on your own podcast that you and Diane have in Class Disruptive, which really was, what do you want of your schooling experience? Yeah. And what do you want your children to know and be able to do? And to be able to somehow scaffold that differently into a series of concepts and understandings and knowledge that kids may get in fourth grade or may get in second grade, or some kids may have mastered in first grade and some kids don't pick it up until third is all okay. As long as we're all getting kind of that, that core base of understanding of what we really need to be successful is that that's what I'm hearing you say, if I'm going to paraphrase. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's my, that's exactly my take. Right. And it's not just the knowledge. It's how do I apply it in skills and then the habits of success or, or character skills, right. Of, how do I self-direct? How do I collaborate? How do I communicate with others across uh, both geography and in person? Like all these skill sets and, and habits are incredibly important as well to being a functioning adult. And that's what I think we ultimately want to produce is, is adults who are able to navigate society, get gainful employment, and be good citizens, right? Like that's a really important piece of this as well is the citizenry piece of that. And I think the events of the last week show we have a lot of work to do on that and we, ha- and we can be much more thoughtful and intentional. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we look at young kids and we look at our moment in time and, and what we're all doing. There's a lot of parents that have a lot of fear right now that their child is falling behind and we yeah. are still looking and grading on standards uh, in our public school system. So you have five-year-old twins, right? <laughs> Yeah. What what advice would you give to parents during this time to help them work through this and what should they or could they be doing or not doing at home with their kids to support such, them? Such a great question. It's so hard to answer because it's so individualized to the family circumstance, right? And the resources that you do or don't have at your house and conversations you can or can't have uh, with adults, depending on what you know the parents do or don't do, right? Um, so it's it's hard to generalize too much. That, that said, I think the principles I'd say are one, routine is good. Build routines that are predictable, that give your children comfort 
in knowing what's going to come and it allows them to innovate out of that, if that, if that makes sense. It's not routine to try to box them in, but to give them security so that they can self-direct within that structure. And that's the second piece, which is like figure out where the choice is that they can have and what's appropriate and, and empower them and be clear, like you get choice over this, right? And be super intentional about that. And then the third thing I think is figure out sort of what ideally with, with your school and ideally it's an individual conversation with your teachers of like, what do we want, you know, my child to be able to know and do and develop on this year. And for some kids, you can use a lot of projects at home <laughs> to build academic understanding that might be important, right? If a child really needs to bolster math, they're really into cooking. Well, they're home now. They can do a lot of cooking and work in ratios. And what happens if you double the recipe to serve more people? Does everything go equal? Like, There's so many interesting ways to jump into these things uh, that I think we can develop in learners and, and make the habits so durable that I, I would try to get creative around it. And then I guess the last piece is, you know, I've been struck just if you give the kids time, what they'll do. Uh, and so just two quick examples, you know, we give a 30 minute block every single day where our kids um, just get to read and the strides that they have made in reading um, has been, it's just, it's not something that I frankly had expected or hoped for <laughs> um, at this age, like it, but it, it, it just astounds me. Right. And it's a choice that they're making and they're so excited by it. They're reading the same books over and over again because we're limited, right. And what's in our library at this <laughs> point, but they like the repetition and you know what, the repetition is really good for building the skill set right now. And then the second quick example is just, they went out the other day on their own packed backpacks uh, with writing utensils and notepads. And they just went out into nature with my wife at the time. And the three of them, they were just drawing flowers that they observed. And then they made a booklet out of it. And it was like, how cool is that, that they planned that, that they had the time that we were able to allot to it, and that they were able to just observe and categorize and all these things that are fundamental principles of science, right? And so I'd say really use your home environment to your advantage. I think that's a good message too, that when kids are given the time and the independence to go and do what they want to do, they will, through no fault of their own, cover a lot of the standards that adults have decided they're supposed to learn. Yes, <laughs> correct. Is, right, right. Exactly. I, like, they're curious, right? <laughs> they're cu- yeah. like, that's, that's the big thing is like, I don't think standards are the enemy. It's just that standards forced down your throat are the enemy, right? And it's like, how do we create the time and space for those to be sucked into larger things of purpose? So, yeah. Yeah. And it's great advice. And it's the same thing we see in the schools when you create a routine and a structure and then allow students to blossom and create some independence and follow their interests within that you see really cool things happen. And the same thing, we just have time to do it at home right now. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. Um, And I think that's a great place for us to end for today. I know there's so much more that we could talk about. And I'd love to talk about blended learning versus humanity and how we draw that together for children and, and experiences that you've had working abroad. But maybe we'll just have to have another conversation. (laughs) <laughs> I would love I, 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 I would love it. I, and I wish you could be in person in San Mateo, which I uh, adore where you are. But, uh, but thanks for the opportunity. And thanks for the school you've created and the opportunities you're creating for kids. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for your time today. And if you do make it out here, you are always welcome. I would love to give you a tour. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, be well. You too. 
Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.